Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. It is hard to overstate the importance of Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex. Written in 1949, this 800-page work chronicles women's condition in exhaustive depth and breadth and is considered the founding work of second-wave feminism. But before we dig into this massive repository of brilliance, I want to introduce my reading partner today, Faiza Parvez. Hi, Faiza. Hi, Amy, and thank you so much for organizing this amazing project and inviting me to participate. Thanks, Faiza. Okay, well, let's now um, quickly talk about Simone de Beauvoir um, as a person, a little bit about her biography and what led her to write this work. So I'll take that part and just talk a little bit about Beauvoir. She was born in Paris on January 9th, 1908. Her mother was a devout Catholic And as a young girl, Simone was a fervent believer in the church, too, and she even considered becoming a nun for a time. Um, But she eventually lost her faith during her teenage years. Um, Beauvoir was intellectually precocious her whole life, even from the time she was little. She was fueled by her father's encouragement, and he reportedly would boast sometimes, Simone thinks like a man, which, of course, was a compliment. It's a little bit of a mixed mixed compliment. Um, But... Uh, The family was well-to-do, but they had lost much of its fortune after World War I. And because she could no longer rely on her dowry to find a good match in marriage, um, she took the opportunity of an excellent education to prepare to earn a living for herself. She attended a prestigious Catholic school. And after passing her baccalaureate exams in mathematics and philosophy in 1925, she studied mathematics at the Institut Catholique in Paris and literature and languages at the Institut Sainte-Marie. And then she studied philosophy at the Sorbonne. So next, after when she was finishing up at the Sorbonne, she sat in on philosophy courses at the, oh, Faiza, do you speak French? Because I do not. And the, the <laughs> École Normale Supérieure. It's yes, perfect. Um, the normal school, the superior school, I guess, in preparation for the aggregation, which is the the giant exams at the end of what would be, I think, the equivalent of like a PhD in philosophy. Mm-hmm. So it was a highly competitive postgraduate examination. And it serves as like a national ranking of students. And it was while studying for that exam that she met Jean-Paul Sartre. Uh, In 1946, um, Beauvoir began to outline what she thought would be an autobiographical essay explaining why, when she had tried to define herself, the first sentence that came to mind was, I am a woman. So Beauvoir was then a 38-year-old public intellectual who had been enfranchised for only a year. And that... (laughs) That's worth repeating. She had lived her entire life in France until the age of 37 without the right to vote. In France, um, they granted suffrage to women only in 1945. Legal birth control would be denied to French women until 1967. And not until the late 1960s would there be an elected female head of state anywhere in the world. So this was a different time. And it's important to remember that kind of the the historical context that Beauvoir grew up in. So anyway, she began researching for this essay and she wanted to start at the beginning of human history. And so her research expanded and expanded Um, because she wanted to talk about the folklore and customs and laws and history and religion and philosophy, literature, economic systems. She just took on 
everything in an exploration of how um, the two sexes developed. And so this essay that she had first started grew into this gigantic project that became The Second Sex. It was published in 1949. It sold 22,000 copies in the first week. It was eventually translated into 40 languages and was placed on the Vatican's list of prohibited books, which I thought was interesting, but not surprising. Um, In 1953, the English translation was first published. And even from the very beginning, this edition was criticized for being not very well translated, that it was inaccurate and that it was improperly abridged. But even so, it took the world by storm. Everyone was reading it. Um, It gained a reputation of being a, a kind of feminist Bible. And it gave a voice and language and a framework to women's struggle. After the publication of The Second Sex, Beauvoir wrote many other works. She continued to think and write and work with Jean-Paul Sartre until his death in 1980. And at that point, she published an edited version of their letters to each other. Um, She herself died of pneumonia in 1986 at the age of 78. And she was buried next to Sartre in Paris, and which you just mentioned, you've been to their graves. So that's uh, an introduction to the author. But before I, th- I think before we can dive into the book quickly, we need also a brief primer on existentialism, since that's really the philosophical framework in which Beauvoir viewed human life. So Faiza, could you talk uh, about existentialism? Yes, thank you, Amy. And that was a wonderful background to Beauvoir and her life and her project and relationship to Sartre. So yes, I will now sort of introduce the audience uh, briefly uh, about French existentialism. And I want to remind the audience, and maybe a lot of people already know this, that the roots of French existentialism lie in German phenomenology. And both Sartre and Beauvoir were introduced to this, you know, they were sitting at a cafe, one of the friends came and they're like, you know, we study at, at university, all this philo- Aristotelian philosophy and Platonic philosophy. And, but do you know about phenomenology? This is the new thing. And they both, you know, heard this feel from their friend and got excited and went on to develop their own uh, version, which became French existentialism. So what German phenomenology or the quest of uh, this philosophy was to understand life as one experienced it. The, they claim that a person is already thrown in a world, a world that is filled with things or filled with appearance of things. And I think we hear a lot of Plato in, in these uh, mm-hmm. you know, terms. Mm-hmm. Um, and what these appearance of things are called phenomena, which Greek for is a thing that appears. Hence, these philosophers decided to focus on this encounter with the phenomena, and the leading thinker of this group was Edmund Husserl, and later on another you know, German phenomenologist, Martin Heidegger, who also stated that important question in philosophy is the question of being, what it is for a thing to be. So in other words, phenomenology was a way of a new way of doing philosophy that connected with the lived experience. And so that was very different from you know, the previous philosophical questions that Beauvoir and Sartre had been studying in university. So in existentialism, basically, is also saying that existence precedes essence. And, you know, if you flip this, this is uh, what, um, you know, St. Aquinas and, and, you know, the Christian thought the essence precedes existence. So they flipped it. They said, no, it's the existence Mm -hmm. that precedes essence. And hence, in this philosophy, there's no creator God that determines the essence for man. 
there is no final purpose or final cause as for Aristotle. Hence, humans exist first, and then they decide their essence, or let other humans decide their essence for them. Um, so Bouffard's perspective is often identified that with, as you mentioned, John Paul Sartre, who's the author of Being and Nothingness, and, you know, Bouvard's intimate friends from their philosophy student days. And Sartre's philosophy is also, you know, philosophy of the absurd. What he says, a man is a useless fashion, condemned to freedom, unable to find solace or meaning in relationships with nature or other people. Encounters with nature lead to nausea. This is his famous novel, Nausea, that, that talks about this. And, and, you know, he has this famous statement, hell is other people. <laughs> but, but, but an important aspect of this French existentialism is anguish. And anguish mm. is seen as a positive term. And why is that? Because in anguish, in anguish is, a, is when a person finds meaning in their life or understands that meaning needs to be constructed and, mm. and hence takes on action. And, and realizes that things have meaning that we give them and we are responsible for our own world. And, you know, you will see that uh, Bouvard takes on this anguish term on the woman question, right? The woman, mm -hmm. what he says, the woman is lost, is that the woman is in anguish and out of it would come, you know, a positive outcome, a positive revolution. And I believe you will now dive into the introduction to the text that sort of lays out Bouvard's project for The Second Sex. Yes, exactly. That was really helpful as a background, um, at just kind of getting inside her head and the way she saw the world. So thank you, Pfizer. That was really helpful and perfect. So yes, I will dive into the introduction. I'd like to introduce just one concept from the introduction, and I'm going to introduce it with a quote right from... Beauvoir. She says, the categories masculine and feminine appear as symmetrical in a formal way on town hall records or identification papers. The relation of the two sexes is not that of two electric poles. The man represents both the positive and the neuter to such an extent that in French, homme designates human beings. And of course, I'll add in there too, it's the same in English, right? It's man means humankind. We say man, and that is the default, kind of the, the neutral, but it's the word for the masculine. So back to Beauvoir, she says, woman is the negative. She says, I used to get annoyed in abstract discussions to hear men tell me, you think such and such a thing because you're a woman. But I know my only defense is I think it because it is true, thereby eliminating my subjectivity. It was out of the question to answer, and you think the contrary because you are a man. Because it is understood that being a man is not a particularity. A man is in his right by virtue of being a man, and it's the woman who is in the wrong. In fact, just as for the ancients, there was an absolute vertical that defined the oblique, there is an absolute human type that is masculine. So Beauvoir goes on to... Um, further develop this idea that men have created themselves as the neutral, the subject. She says it's they're called the one, and then they conceive from their place of primacy, they conceive of the woman as the other. So they are the subject and the woman is the object. They are primary, woman is secondary. So um, let's go into the history section. And Faiz, I think you've chosen 
again, just kind of the the gems that you want to highlight. So why don't you go ahead and do that? Right. I mean, there's so much to to discuss in the history section. As Amy mm-hmm. mentioned, there are five chapters. And I will point out, you know, the ones that struck me this time. So yeah, so I'll start with chapter one. And she begins the chapter basically stating that the world has always belonged to males. And um and we're never given enough reason why is that so? And and also she wants to understand how this world came to be, you know. So she she goes on and reviews prehistoric and ethnographic data in light of her own existential philosophy to understand this hierarchy of the sexes and how it came to be. Why are the women, you know, in the lower stratum and men are the the rulers of our world? And um, and so she has an answer for that. And the answer is the burden of reproduction. That mm-hmm. is what caused the women to become weaker. So she says, this is quoting from her, as for ordinary women, pregnancy, giving birth and menstruation diminished their work capacity and condemned them to a long periods of impotence to defend themselves against enemies or take care of themselves and their children. They needed the protection of warriors and the catch from hunting and fishing provided by the males. As there obviously was no birth control, and this is something that she alludes to over and over again throughout the text, Mm -hmm. and as nature does not provide women with sterile periods as it does for other female mammals, frequent pregnancies must have absorbed the greater part of their strength and their time. They were unable to provide for the lives of the children they brought into the world. And and she says that, uh, you know, women just never gain total anatomy, uh, autonomy from motherhood. So what a woman does is that she just passively submits to her biological destiny. And, um, and, and you know, she's just as duties of motherhood and housework. And she's condemned to this domestic labor. And this is what locks her in into repetition and eminence. So, you know, this is why she cannot attain a higher meaning for herself through, um, you know, motherhood, because she gets stuck in eminence. And especially in a time when we think women had to reproduce 10 or more children because of, you know, um, uh, the death rates were high for kids. So the woman all her time is spent being pregnant or taking care of children and and, Mm -hmm. domestic labor. So um, so she claims that day after day, the woman repeats these tasks and this keeps going on from century to century and this produces nothing new. So what so what she claims is, you know, how that that comes to differentiate what the role of men. She says that the man has always been an inventor since the beginning of time and he's the one who lays the groundwork for the future and women just sort of, you know, rides along with him. And he's mm-hmm. the one who breaks forth and creates new things. Um, so moving on, I would just like to point out that, um, you know, you mentioned in your introduction how she talks about the historical view of women. Like you had pointed out that, um, you know, line that she has before her her opening of her book. And, uh, and it's really funny, like some of, you know, she uses um, these uh, lines from 
quotes from uh, saints and all like, you know, they say, women, you are the devil. You have convinced mm-hmm. the one devil did not dare to confront directly. It is your fault that God's son had to die. So, so you know, mm-hmm. so she, she, St. John says, of all the wild animals, none can be found as harmful as a woman. So she mm-hmm. uses a lot of these sort of quotes to, to sort of showcase the narrative that has been there about a woman and why she's been conceived as um, the devil and, uh, you know, this anti-woman rhetoric. And which is why, you know, listening to that rhetoric over and over again, you start believing that you are the devil, right? I mean, we yep. we know that from psychology that the more you tell a person you are X, Y, Z, they will exactly be that same thing that you're telling them. And this is, you know, what she's trying to showcase. For me, I'm just picturing um, kind of the continuum, the timeline of... Uh, women's history from the very beginning and now picturing her writing this in the 1940s at her particular moment in time I think I do think of I I mean the the quotes that you just mentioned that she's quoting the early church fathers and just and that she quoted Pythagoras at the beginning all of this misogynistic thinking that had really created the world Mm -hmm. the way it was I feel like the point that she wrote this book incorporated and finally gave voice to so many women all throughout history whose voices had just kind of gone out into the void and that they had perhaps made progress in their thinking and in their analysis and their critique of the system as it existed, but it wasn't able to change anything But because they weren't able to band together. Mm. Thinking about the timeline from the beginning of this podcast project, we started in Neolithic times, mm. and so does Beauvoir in her book, right? right, right, right. In the very beginning, um, it's only been in the last like nanosecond of human <laughs> history when you look at the big timeline that women really have finally banded together and said, "We need to do something that changes this, not just write in our journals and talk with our sisters and our female friends and commiserate." And then nothing ever changes. So she really is a change maker. And it's the right moment in time in the middle of the the 20th century. But it hasn't been long that this has happened, which is why we're still in process, I guess. Yeah, no, definitely. I think think you're right, Amy. She does want you know, a revolution. She wants to weaken this bourgeoisie society. She wants the woman to be liberated from the man. And, And you're right. Like she wants the women to... Uh, you know, come in solidarity with each other, the working class women, the bourgeoisie women, the upper class women. I mean, they need, you know, to to not cling to their class class consciousness and their class privileges, but come mm-hmm. together. And I think that's mm-hmm. what she's trying to state in this history section. Yeah, I agree. I think that's, yeah, again, a fantastic summary. So that kind of um, wraps up this section, Faiza. That was a fantastic. Okay, I'm going to take the chapters that are titled Childhood and the Married Woman. And then Faiza, you'll have the chapters, The Mother and um, Woman's Situation and Character. So I'll start with childhood. And there are three points that I took from this chapter that I want to share. So the first one is, probably one of Beauvoir's most famous quotes. If you just look her up, um, you'll see the quote, one is not born, but rather becomes woman. So Beauvoir introduces this notion that sex is different from gender. 
Um, sex is physiological. It's based on male or female genitalia. And with very rare exception, human beings, sex is binary, right? So at birth, they're labeled, it's a boy or it's a girl. It's a binary thing. Your sex is determined by your body parts. She says gender is different. And this is the way sex and gender is con- conceptualized now. Um, Beauvoir points out that gender is not physiological, but how a person presents themselves in the world. So a person's gender is acquired gradually throughout one's life based on the culture norms about like what clothes and hairstyles and mannerisms signal male or female traits across a spectrum. And each person just as they grow up, they receive messages about what it means to be a boy, what it means to be a girl. And this is what Beauvoir refers to as a person becoming a woman throughout her lifetime. So when we think about existentialism, we can see that this way of seeing sex and gender is really existentialist in nature as opposed to essentialist. Mm -hmm. So in the book, she points out that the Greeks thought that human beings had an essence that made them them. And our best life can be lived by figuring out what our unique purpose is, what is our essence, and then we align our choices and our lives with that purpose. Beauvoir, as an existentialist, she says there isn't really a pre-existent self. Existentialism says that we create meaning in our lives through our actions. So we create whatever meaning we choose, and we create our essence. Um, And Beauvoir carries this idea into the gender question with this statement that says, I, or that one is not born, but rather becomes a woman throughout their life and creates that meaning in their life. Would you say that's um, an accurate assessment, Faiza? Yeah, no, that's very well put together. I think uh, you accurately said um, that, you know, Bouvard says that both boys and girls are born equal. They have the same traits. And what what is it that makes the girl child different? And she says she socialized basically to mm-hmm. be different. Like man, he learns his power. And 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 then this passivity or um, you know being mediocre or eminent is sort of pushed onto the girl child from the very beginning. And that's when she starts embodying those characteristics. Mm-hmm. And there's a point where she starts talking about you know the families in this in this um, chapter, she talks about the family experience of the of the girl. And she starts seeing the father as the authority figure, the one who yep. goes out, he's the sovereign. And, uh, you know, what does he do outside his time spent at home. And based on that, she sort of uh, sees that he is transcendence, he is God. And and so, um, and boys are spoken about with more seriousness and more esteem. So then that's when she realizes that men are the masters of the world and not women. And and this is like the great re- revelation to her. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree with, with everything you said. Um, and you actually really articulated well the second point, which is perfect, where um, the second point from that chapter that I wanted to highlight, which you just talked about, really eloquently is a child's gradual realization that it's the men are in charge the men that are in charge so just like you said babies are treated pretty much the same way kissed and cuddled and hugged mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and they and their psychological world revolves around the mother 
But then gradually they start mm-hmm. to realize like, oh, it's actually not the women that are in charge. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, so the third point from this chapter is that girls experience a transition from their bodies being a subject to being an object. So Beauvoir says, this body that the little girl identified with self becomes an object that others look at and see. And Beauvoir cites a lot of different women's stories. And this is one. So this isn't Beauvoir. This is an anonymous woman who contributed to contributed this study to to Beauvoir's work. So she says, at 13, I walked around bare-legged in a short dress. A man sniggering made a comment about my fat calves. (laughs) The next day, my mother made me wear stockings and lengthen my skirt. But I will never forget the shock I suddenly felt in seeing myself seen. Mm. Um, Beauvoir then comments, um, she says, Quote, the little girl feels that her body is escaping her, that it is no longer the clear expression of her individuality. It becomes foreign to her. And at the same moment, she is grasped by others as a thing. On the streets, eyes follow her. Her body is subject to comments. She would like to become invisible. She is afraid. So those were the three main points I wanted to talk about from the childhood chapter. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh, and then I have the next one, too. So the next chapter is The Married Woman. Hmm. And she starts the chapter with a discussion of the imbalance that we take for granted when a man and a woman get married. And even like the tradition of the father walking the daughter down the aisle to give Mm -hmm. his daughter to the man that's waiting on the other side. It's just it's a transfer of ownership. So if you look at the historical timeline that we've been following along, you know, this podcast through the different episodes, it's kind of disturbing to reflect on where these practices come from, from men literally owning women. Um, And so Beauvoir points out a lot of those, those things that we take for granted in the marriage construct. But I want to share two more. And the first one is the wife as a facilitator of other people's lives. Mm. And I'm just going to read, um, Beauvoir's words. She says, today man marries to anchor himself in imminence, but not to confine himself in it. He wants a home, but also to remain free to escape from it. Mm. Children, even more than husbands, want to go beyond the home's limits. Their life is elsewhere, in front of them. The wife tries to constitute a universe of permanence and continuity. Husband and children want to go beyond the situation she creates and which for them is only a given. The matron is dependent on her husband and children. She justifies her existence through them. Regardless of how well she is respected, she is subjugated, secondary, parasitic. The heavy curse weighing on her is that the very meaning of her existence is not in her hands. This is the reason the successes and failures of her conjugal life have much more importance for her than for the man. He is a citizen, a producer, before being a husband. She is above all, and often exclusively, a wife. Mm. So I, I mean, with the exception, I suppose, of um, kind of dramatic words like parasitic, which were off-putting to me personally, I really, really related to Beauvoir's description of that that scenario where the woman spends all day working, making the home a safe place for everybody else to come back to so that they can, it's like a nest that the other birds get to fly out and have adventures. Mm. 
and come back to this safe nest. And it's not fair for the mama bird to always have to stay in the nest while everybody else gets to fly away. So I have the second point from the chapter on the married woman is a short one. And I'll just read a couple of quotes to illustrate it, but it's the the narrative of the controlling wife. Mm-hmm. And I hear this too when, when some of my um, dear friends who have a conservative view of gender roles talk about like, um, they'll use controlling or very um, dominant personality women as evidence that patriarchy doesn't exist or that we've moved past patriarchy because look at my my mother was she ruled the roost in my family and she would boss my dad around and they kind of used that um, that I won't say trope, but that figure of the the controlling woman to illustrate how women are actually the ones who oppress men. So here's what Beauvoir has to say about that. She says, um, it is commonplace to say that in modern households, and again, modern, she's writing this in the 1940s, that in modern households, especially in the United States, the wife has reduced the husband to slavery. The fact is not new. And then she says that this narrative has been documented actually since ancient Greece, which I thought was interesting. Um, Here are two more quotes to illustrate what she's talking about. She says, males are in chains by their very sovereignty. It is because they alone earn money that the wife demands checks, because men alone practice a profession that the wife demands that they succeed, Because they alone embody transcendence that the wife wants to steal it from them by taking over their projects and successes. And inversely, the tyranny wielded by the woman only manifests her dependence. She knows the success of the couple, its future, its happiness, and its justification resides in the hands of the other. In the end, he can do without her more easily than she him. If he leaves her, it is she whose life will be ruined." Mm. And then the other quote um, is, she says, the spouses together submit to the oppression of an institution they have not created. If it is said men oppress women, the husband reacts indignantly. He feels oppressed. He is. But in fact, it is the masculine code, the society developed by males and in their interest that has defined the feminine condition in a form that is now for both sexes a source of distress. Um, I found that incredibly insightful Mm -hmm. and kind of encapsulates a lot of the ideas that we were just talking about. Um, So we'll wrap up there with, we'll wrap up that chapter um, on the married woman. And then the next chapter we'll go to is the chapter on the mother Mm. next time on breaking down patriarchy. Mm. 